Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. It's good to have all of you with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, You know, yesterday we had a huge day in the state of Georgia, the first day of early voting. In a moment, we'll talk about just how big it really was in terms of turnout. Um, There were long lines. Uh, Voters were absolutely determined to cast their ballots from the interviews that GPB News conducted, other news organizations conducted with people standing in lines, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, We also saw the first debate yesterday between David Perdue and John Ossoff, his Democratic opponent, uh, sponsored by the Atlanta Press Club. It aired last night on GPB uh, TV. We're going to talk about that with the moderator of that debate, uh, Donna Lowry, who will join us uh, in just a second. Uh, And a lot more going on in the news. Jill Biden was in town yesterday. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. was here. So let's get right to our panel and talk about uh, all of that and much more. We're really happy to be joined by Dr. Andra Gillespie, who uh, is a frequent panelist on this show. And all of you know we always love having uh, Andra Gillespie on. She's a professor of political science at Emory University, also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute on race. Andra, how are things going with for you at Emory these days? How are classes? Is everybody being safe and, and secure? Um, so, you know, we haven't had an outbreak and we're very thankful for that and hope that we don't have one. Um, but yeah, everything seems to be going pretty okay. We're glad to hear that. We hope it, it continues that way. Um, we also have a great uh, a group of journalists uh, with us today. Uh, Tia Mitchell who is the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is uh, here. Uh, Tia, uh, thank you for being here today. And although you're uh, based in Washington, you mentioned just before the show, you'll be heading into Georgia to cover a couple of the congressional races as the race comes down to the final week or so. Yep, I'm headed to Atlanta for the home stretch. So um, holla at me. Welcome south, uh, Tia. We'll be glad to have you here. Uh, Donna Lowry is with us. You all know Donna as the moderator, the host, the anchor of Lawmakers on GPB-TV. But as I said, uh, Donna, yesterday you were in the um, interesting position of trying to keep a peace, uh, not just between Ossoff and Purdue, but you also had uh, the libertarian candidate, Shane Hazel, in the mix as well. Uh but you're none the worse for where are you, Donna? No, I, I've survived. I'm still all, you know, I'm still all together <laughs> here. So I'm happy about that. But um, I, there were times when I thought I'm, I'm going to lose control. I'm going to lose total control of this. But we kept it together and ended on time. So that was never, good. never did you lose control. And I think <laughs> you were fortunate in some ways, given how aggressively. Purdue and Asaf wanted to go at each other. I think you were probably kind of lucky that this was done as a WebEx a virtual exactly. debate. <laughs> yeah, I wondered how I would have kept well, them apart if they had been together in the same studio. <laughs> I did wonder about that. Um, we'll talk 
We'll talk about the debate in just a few minutes, but uh, first, Riley Bunch is with us as well. She, of course, is the State House reporter for CNHI News. Uh, Riley, thank you for uh, joining us uh, today as well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. As you said yesterday, it was a crazy day in Georgia, and thank goodness we have great journalists like Donna and Tia. Um, everyone's out doing their best to cover and bring Georgians the news, so it's good to have a good press corps. Well, let's let's talk for a few minutes about what happened on early voting yesterday. Um, Tia, I'll start with you on this. We we now know that uh, the Secretary of State's office is reporting more than 128,000 people lined up to vote early. And um, Secretary of State's office tells us that's a record for first day of early voting. In um, 2016, the early voting numbers were something like uh, 90,000. GPB uh, News had uh, journalists all over the state, and uh, they reported four-hour waits at one voting site in Atlanta, Adams Park Library, which is in the southwest corner of Atlanta. There was heavy turnout in DeKalb, um, although we should say Fulton seemed to have uh, the biggest turnout, partly because they had 30 polling places open. There was huge turnout in Coweta County. I mean, so... Um, Donna, uh, it, or Tia, rather, it was, there, the thirst for voting was undeniable yesterday, Tia. Right. I think, you know, we've talked about it was a holiday for many people. So the first day of early voting also coincided with the day that people have off. It, it sends to me several messages. Number one, the message that, look what happens when you let people have off from work. They Maybe voting should be a holiday, you know, maybe. Um, But it also does show that voters are very motivated this year. You know, the message of vote, um, voting being so important and having your voice heard, I think is really resonating with people. And so, you know, there's been a lot of discussion amongst um, us journalists and pundits over how much to panic about the turnout in this first day. And I am of the ilk that it is concerning because we don't expect turnout to diminish. I think this is just a preview of what's to come later in early voting and on election day. Well, so Andra, let me bring you and and, and everybody else in. Uh, uh, Donna and Riley want you to weigh in on this as well. But, but Andra, one of the things we should point out is that the lines that we saw develop yesterday, there were some problems with some voting apparatus that have been reported already. State Farm Arena at the very beginning of voting yesterday, the largest polling place in Fulton County, had to reboot their system because the voter cards that each voter was handed weren't working in the machines. But I think it's important to note that the long lines yesterday seem to be different from June 9th when those long lines, in some cases, were precipitated by significant problems uh, with the apparatus and with untrained poll workers, part of this yesterday was just how many people wanted to cast ballots, yes? Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's still too early for me to say, but I think we should all prepare for the contingency that something is going to go wrong, right? Like, that's part of the logistics planning for this that I don't think was evident on June 9th. And that we're still learning and that I think you just have to just accept as part of being normal. I think the problem is, is that if you think everything is going to go perfectly and you don't have a plan B when something screws up, 
that's what will exacerbate bottlenecks. And you'll have people sitting on lines at 11, 11 p.m. on the actual election day voting. And so I think you have to prepare for every possible contingent and have a plan that you can quickly implement in order to resolve issues. Yeah, I would just jump yeah, in. Yeah, I that, mean, Riley, that's it. Yeah, I was going to say, Bill, you know, we're coming down to the wire. Secretary of State's office keeps having little trial runs. We had the primary and then all the runoff. And, you know, we are in early voting now and uh, the kinks should be worked out. But I, I really hope that this narrative that voters have to stand in these long lines to vote isn't perpetuated. You know, we, we hope that we're going to see long lines because of the pandemic, but we hope that they're, they're shortened ahead of, you know, November 3rd. Yeah. Uh, I'm, my phone started pinging with text early on, shortly after the polls opened in Fulton County, with different people having problems. At one precinct, there was no printer. It was down or the printer was down. Um, and then I got another text that they, um, they had 100 people in line and they allowed people to do to to vote without the printout. And if you've done the voting in person, since we have the new machines, you know that that printout is an important part of things. So the fact that they were allowing people to do that, I thought was curious. But I'm not surprised at the turnout because I, I don't know. You know, Bill, you've been doing this a long time, and so have I. But I don't know when I've seen people as motivated uh, for voting before. Uh, the not only with the mailers that we're receiving and the ads and so much more, but things is uh, maybe it's because of the pandemic that so many of these virtual get out the vote events have just been constant. Some organizations over and over again, and then even my pastor at my church has been wearing a T-shirt that says "Vote" on it for each Sunday for the past month or two. It just just a simple message that is just on his shirt. He's, he, he talks about it in person, but not as much as just that overall feeling of let's get out there. I mean, the masks have vote on it. The Everybody, just the whole idea of voting is such a big deal right now. And I just, maybe it's just the moment, but it just feels like it's bigger than ever before. So, Andra, I want to come back to you because I, I, I think it's important that I say I'm not suggesting that we should be content with the long lines uh, uh, and, and that nece- they were not necessarily caused by the kind of problems we saw with machinery on June 9th. Because, in fact, we do expect, Andra, some 6 million plus Georgians or 5 million plus Georgians, rather, to vote by Election Day. We've already had more than 600,000 between early voting and absentee, accepted absentee ballots who have voted. And and so the issue becomes, if you're going to have millions of people who wait till Election Day to cast their ballots, uh, and that we've already had long lines on the first day of early voting, that does suggest that whether the machines are working beautifully or not, people are going to, this could become a bottleneck that will be uh, uh, troublesome. Yes. Um, you know, it could be discouraging for voters, particularly who are crunched for time um, or who, you know, are unsure about the process and, you know, just and would sort of have anxiety about just about anything. I mean, I think we should do a lot to try to allay people's concerns and to prepare them for what they should expect. You know, I remember in 2008 standing in line the last day of early voting in Decatur Um, And standing in line for three hours and being happy to do it, right? It was a very joyous atmosphere. 
So there are times when it, you know, it seems like it's fun. And then there are times when it doesn't seem like it's fun. When it seems like this is being done because of voter suppression, then it's a very different type of tone. Um, I think what that experience taught me was the importance of planning. And I think for this year in particular, if you're having long lines on the first day of early voting, um, imagine what it would be if all those people had to vote on one day, right? And trying to social, yeah. socially, social distance at the same time. Like that is the reason why we have to have early voting, right? It's because not everybody's gonna have the day off on election day. So use the day off that you do have in order to make you uh, in, in order to make this easier. And then also, if we all had to jump in the same place, even though there are many more precinct locations on election day than there are for early voting, right? Imagine sort of what those lines would be and how much risk we would be putting people at to do that. I think the final thing is is that you know. This is also a time to kind of learn when to game. So we know that yesterday was heavy, I think because there were a lot of people who were motivated because of pent up demand. And I think also because of the holiday too, I think Tia makes a really good point about that. Um, we'll see what the numbers look like from day to day to see whether or not that there are the same kinds of bottlenecks today and tomorrow and Thursday, but it could also be certain times of day. So, you know, a lot of people like to do this first thing in the morning on their way into work. If you only have a certain a limited amount of time, then perhaps you do do it on your day off, or maybe you do it at lunch, or maybe you do it on the way home. Um, and thus we can stagger it so that people can, can be able to do this safely with and, and, and do it uh, in as little time as possible. So, you know, I just think everybody kind of has to just be patient and to be as flexible as they possibly can be. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that I want us to, the people listening, to remember that early voting turnout starts high for those who want to get in on the first day. Then it kind of levels off. But the last week of early voting, it gets higher turnout every day. So towards the end of early voting, those last few days, we'll likely have more people than we saw on Monday. And it won't be a holiday. They might not be as patient about waiting four hours, eight hours, 11 hours. And that's why I want us, you know, again, those listening from home, you know, I think some people are saying, well, you have three weeks, so what's the big deal if this one day, but this one day is not necessarily the peak. And this one day is indicative that these problems, as everyone's pointed out, are not necessarily problems with the machinery. It's just these are things that aren't easily solved other than expanding access and looking at the systems. And neither one of those are fixed quickly. Um, and that's why, again, I think the people listening at home, a lot of times there's questions as when, when you hear voter rights groups or Stacey Abrams talking about voter suppression, you have to look deeper the lines yesterday are symbolic of decisions that were made months ago. And that's the deeper question that we as Georgians are going to have to grapple with. Again, not just in the short term, but long term, there were other decisions that could have been made and were not. Um, let's thank you for that. Let me amplify what you just said briefly, uh, Tia. The final day of early voting is the Friday before Election Day, so Friday, October 30th, and is, is, is typically, that last Friday, is typically the heaviest early voting day 
of all. And I think the message we're sending to our listeners today, you've all said it in one way or another, is if you want to if you want to get out there and vote and do it as efficiently as possible, not be frustrated, uh, plan your vote. Uh, plan your in-person vote or continue with uh, your plan to uh, send in an absentee ballot. So I, I think that I really appreciate all of you reinforcing a message, but it's pretty clear that there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about the 2020 elections. Um, all right, let's, Donna Lowry, <laughs> let me start with you on this. Let's talk about the first encounter between John Ossoff and David Perdue, who have been uh, shooting at each other from a, the distance of television commercials and individual appearances, either virtual appearances or in-person appearances that each of them have done in front of uh, uh, their, their uh, supporters or they, who, people they hope are their supporters. And uh, yesterday, again, it was virtual, but for the first time we saw the two of them come together uh, with the addition of the libertarian candidate. The Atlanta Press Club has always believed that uh, it's important that the candidates, all of the candidates basically uh, running in a given race, uh, uh, deserve to be heard. And, and so yesterday you were, uh, gave Shane Hazel pretty much uh, a comparable time to both Ossoff and Purdue. Why don't you give us just your general, uh, you, you really sort of talked about it, but how would you say the candidates uh, handled the constraints that the press club asked you and them to deal with in terms of respecting the format? And I ask that in the context of what we saw, of course, in the first presidential debate, which completely uh, fell apart. How do you think things, in, in a general way, went in terms of the respectfulness the candidates gave to the process? Well, I, I think they. Uh, I don't think they thought about um, keeping to uh, respecting the process. I think that um, maybe it's because of the the uh, federal debates we saw they um, with the debates um, for president and vice president that they were a little different because they came out swinging. I mean, much of what. They said we continued is what we heard we hear in their ads, which what the AJC is saying, right, $100, $110 million in ads they're spending right now. Senator Perdue talked of Ossoff's radical social agenda over and over again. Someone told me he's counted six times that he said it. Ossoff went hard on the Republican failures when it comes to the pandemic, accusing Perdue of trying to uh, not having a shred of uh, empathy or any personal responsibility when it comes to uh, the pandemic. Uh, they went back and forth, and it started with the first question that Purdue was asked. Uh, journalist uh, Rahul Bali asked about the federal requirements dealing with education. And Purdue mentioned a few things about the fact that he believes in school choice and his parents were teachers and that kind of thing. But nothing about testing. He went right into talking about what he felt, like trying to bracket, as he said, what he felt Ossoff was there to talk about, and that was defunding police and sanctuary cities and the Green New Deal and closing military bases and so forth. And then Ossoff came right back in and pushed on what he called these personal partisan attacks and accused, uh, certainly accused of uh, Purdue of reading his notes. So I think they, the, um, the, the virtual aspect of it 
didn't stop them from doing what they wanted, saying what they wanted to say. All right. Let me jump in because let's play some sound from the debates and uh, reinforce, emphasize what you just said. Um, we're going to listen to sound number two, Sam, please. And in this one, at the very beginning, it's going to sound you're it's it's kind of a food fight just for a second or two. But very quickly, you'll hear Asaf begin to make his point, which he made repeatedly throughout the evening. No one surprised, which is that the Trump administration. Uh, and with David Perdue's complicity, has failed, uh, Asop would say, to contain the virus. So let's listen to that exchange first. I'd like you to know that 20,000 Americans have been killed. And listen to you, schoolyard insults, not a shred of empathy, not a shred of personal responsibility that a virus you told us posed low risk to our health, that a virus you compared to the ordinary flu, that administration response that was obviously totally incompetent, which you enabled and praised, has compounded the human right. tragedy and the economic damage. You should be ashamed Ten of yourself, seconds. sir. No, and, who should be ashamed and, of yourself, John, is this, is that you took money from the Chinese government that originated this virus in the first place. Senator you Perdue. You're so critical of Gentlemen, we're, we're gonna the have to get- government for their culpability. <laughs> All right, Donna Lowry trying to get uh, control again. And of course, <laughs> one of the themes that uh, Purdue hit on repeatedly is the fact that, or, or his contention, uh, that Ossoff's uh, uh, documentary filmmaking company at one point did do some business with a uh, company that, that has some ownership by the Chinese government. I, I believe that's correct. Let's listen to the other soundbite, which emphasizes what Purdue was trying to get across, and then we'll open it up for a conversation with the panel. But let me just bracket what we're going to hear tonight just a minute. First of all, John Ossoff is desperate. He will say anything to hide his radical socialist agenda. He wants to defund the police. He wants open borders, sanctuary cities. He wants the Green New Deal. He wants to cut and, and close military bases in Georgia and to force socialized medicine. He will say anything to hide his radical socialist agenda. That's not only dangerous. Ten seconds. It's dangerous for communities and families in Georgia. Thank you, seconds. Senator. Well, we can see you're reading from your notes that your staff has prepared you. And the question was about this COVID-19 pandemic, which has killed nearly 220,000 Americans. After you assured us the risk to our health was low and compared it to the common flu. So instead of pivoting like all you Washington politicians do to personal partisan attacks, which are false, why don't you answer the question about how you're gonna help schools during this outbreak? Okay, Riley, uh, I give you the open floor to give us your thoughts on what uh, transacted between the two now that we've heard kind of the, the most general points they were trying to make to, against one another. You know, though, I think we got what we expected out of this debate, um, what we got, what we're seeing from the political ads from the two sides. I think Shane Hazel did a pretty good job navigating just the back and forth between Ossoff and Purdue. And I think that, you know, Purdue had his points that he wanted to push across and he was not going to be answering the questions. But I do think, you know, Emma Hurt with WABE asked John Ossoff. Um, how his lack of political experience was going to help him or how he would navigate that if he was elected. And I, I think that kind of helped him in the debate a little bit because 
he Purdue didn't have a record to point at John Ossoff. He didn't have you made this, this, and X decisions before. He only had, you know, what John Ossoff's campaign platform is saying. But John Ossoff had these past records of Purdue to point to on all these different topics. And I think that was um, an interesting takeaway. But yeah, it was basically what we expected from the two of them. So Tia, there was we we heard what they what they wanted to attack each other with. Um, my I came away feeling that there was really kind of parity in terms of how uh, in terms of their uh, the strength of their attacks against one another. It's up to voters mm-hmm. to decide what among of all of that they want to take to heart and believe was accurate and truthful. Right. There's a lot to slog through um, from both candidates. You know down to, you know, the Green New Deal. And then Ossoff says he doesn't support the Green New Deal. And then defund the police. And Ossoff says he doesn't support defund the police. But you have to, voters are really going to have to visit these candidates' websites and pay attention to what they're saying on their own behalf. Um, For both candidates, because as Riley pointed out, John Ossoff doesn't have a record of public service to say what he will or won't do. Purdue does. And I think voters should also really pay attention to that, you know, because both of these candidates for better or for, or for worse are spending a lot of time attacking the other person and not as much time speaking clearly um, about what they plan to do if they will be in office. And that's on purpose to all the people listening. That is on purpose um, because Ossoff, has to attack Purdue. He doesn't really have anything else he can he can hang his hat on. And Purdue um, is going on attack against Ossoff because, quite frankly, he's very conservative. He's aligned with President Trump, and that's not the most popular thing to say um, this election cycle. And so, unfortunately, voters are going to have to slog through this and really focus hard, reading good journalism from all the folks on this panel, and, and go there. You know, it's actually really interesting. Um, you know, when I hear uh, from the clips some of Senator Perdue's comments, I'm, I'm, I was thinking about like what he might have gotten from message testing and polls. And I think what I can't tell is whether or not that's coming from national polls or Georgia specific polls that he's doing internally, right? Because the message is the national message, and he's just tying us off to broader Democratic talking points. And so it's a question of sort of whether or not those land very specifically on Ossoff. Um, you know, we've seen the spliced, um, you know, TV ads that would try to do that. But it's also a question of do you really think that Ossoff is, you know, in the back pocket of AOC? Um, and then there's a, the larger question about the position of being an incumbent versus being a, a, a challenger. And, you know, incumbents part of the advantage that they have to the extent that they have it, I'm not talking about partisanship and Democrats voting for Purdue because that's probably not gonna happen that much this um, this cycle, um, is just this idea of you know what you're getting. And Ossoff can make a lot of promises, but the problem of being a challenger is nobody knows whether or not they can actually trust what you're saying because you haven't had an opportunity to prove yourself just yet. Um, and that could be a help or that could be a hindrance. And so what Ossoff is clearly doing is saying, you know what you're going to get with David Perdue. Do you like what you've seen in the last six years or in particular what you've seen in the last six months? And are you willing to penalize him 
and come take a chance on me, even though uh, there's no basis. I don't want to say no basis, but even though you're going to have to take a leap of faith that I'm going to be able to deliver the things that I'm promising. I love that point. And I especially love that you also pointed out that uh, what happened yesterday in this debate was we heard two candidates who basically were repeating the same messages that their national parties are uh, are using as their main talking points for the for the uh, campaign. Let's do this. Let's get a break in. I do want to talk a little bit more about the Senate debate uh, in the broader context of whether debates like this continue to be useful. And I'd love to hear the panel comment on that. Uh, but uh, we'll do this. Uh, Right now, take a break and come back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Joining us for Political Rewind today, Riley Bunch, uh, CNHI News, Donna Lowry, the host of Lawmakers on GPB and the host of yesterday's debate between Asaf and Purdue, Dr. Andre Gillespie of Emory University, and Tia Mitchell, the Washington correspondent of the AJC. So, uh, Tia, there were some ways in which, I mean, as, as Donna pointed out, you know, David Purdue was a perfect example of how debates have turned into an opportunity for people to showcase the talking points they wanted to come into the debate with and would emphasize over and over again when in the first question, which we played his answer to, he said, well, I'll answer your question about education briefly, but now let me tell you about the radical socialist agenda of uh, John Ossoff. So so here's a, a, to me what was interesting. In some ways, what, what I thought was most interesting about the debate yesterday were questions that the candidates refused to answer. Asov never did really answer the question of whether he supported the idea of adding justices to the U.S. Supreme Court as one example of that. David Perdue never really did answer uh, questions about whether he thought the Trump administration had done a satisfactory job with the virus. Uh, So aside from the talking points is what isn't said that tells me more as a voter, I I think. I mean, I think it... It tells voters that they don't want to answer the question, but it doesn't help voters really walk away with a better understanding of the candidates and what they'll do. And I think, you know, if last election cycle taught us journalists to be more thoughtful about polling, perhaps this cycle is teaching us journalists to be more thoughtful about debates and forums. And some of this is a byproduct of the virtual nature. Um, It's harder, I think, in person with an audience to not answer the question because the audience will react in real time. And that's an incentive to not get the boos and the hisses that are sure to come if you dodge questions in front of a live audience. And I think that's what's missing a little bit from um, the virtual nature of debates. But I also think, you know, we as journalists are really going to have to grapple with this. Like, because it comes from the top down. These dodging measures, these um, 
using the question to answer the way you want to answer is something we've seen at the presidential and the vice presidential debates as well. So Purdue and Ossoff are just kind of following that trend of of using the time to say what you want to say, not address the answer. And But I think us journalists have to come up with better parameters to avoid that in the future. Uh, Andra, are we reaching a point of diminishing returns? Uh, certainly the first presidential debate gave us reason to assess the value of that encounter. Did, it, it, what function do debates serve if, in fact, we've gotten to the point where it's just a matter of getting your talking points across? Well, um, so for presidential debates, which is where the uh, research has been done, they actually are important, particularly the first debates, because they tend to provide a lot of information to voters. So if people haven't been paying attention or have not had a chance to study up on candidates, this is an opportunity for them to hear directly from the candidates and to learn something about them um, uh, that could actually be influential in helping to shape voter decisions. What was unusual this year was compared to the most uh, recent election cycles, most people went into the, de the presidential debates with um, sort of their preconceived notions. And they already went in thinking that they weren't going to change their minds based on what they heard. Um, and then also, I think the problem with the first presidential debate was you didn't get to hear anything substantive. But what we learned in terms of style um, and character actually probably was really important. Um, it conveyed a lot of information. It didn't convey policy information, but it certainly said a lot about the candidates and their character um, and I'd say probably for yesterday's debate, if there were people who tuned in who didn't really know much about either of the candidates, they learned something. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think the questions are, you know, what's the value added of having subsequent debates? Um, you know, it's not been unusual in presidential uh, uh, terms to have like a foreign policy centered debate. And those actually are really helpful because that tends to be the stuff that people don't know much about. Um, and so I still would be in favor of, of keeping debates. I think the larger question is, how do you keep control over uh, candidates who clearly are going to do what they want to do? And are you in a position to, you know, upbraid them, cut off their mics and do other kinds of things? But I wouldn't throw out the debates just because, you know, so um, we've seen, you know, we saw a bad presidential debate this cycle. So let me, uh, Donna, let me get you in on that, and then I want Riley to have the final word on it. So, Donna, it, it, the moderator has an important role to play, uh, which you, I thought, did everything you could yesterday to play that role. Yeah, it, it was tough, and I really didn't expect them to come after each other until the second segment where they had the questions for each other. So I didn't expect it to come so soon. Actually, the journalists on the panel and I, we talked ahead of time, and we just kind of figured that's what was going to happen. Uh, but they did come. They did have a plan. They knew what they wanted, despite the fact that it was a debate, and they knew that there were journalists going to ask questions. They had their own plan in place, and they were determined to get that plan through in terms of what they wanted to say. And I, I kind of disagree on the fact that they were able to allow the public to see who they were, because what we saw was a lot of what we see on, in their, from their parties for in campaign ads and their own campaign ads. And I don't know if we really got a chance to see who they are. We did learn that they don't like each other at all. I think we did learn that. Um, but in terms of them being able to really showcase who they are, I'm not sure if they were able to do that. A little bit in the closing statements, but but not a lot. I do think the whole idea of virtual where I had to interrupt them made it more difficult 
um, all along, you know, for, I had to give them those 10 seconds and then trying to, um, trying to see, we asked them to, you know, raise their hands if they are, let us, let me know if they needed to say something else. And they, and that was difficult to see with the, you know, the pictures on the screens and that kind of thing. So, I know we'll, you know, we'll see whether I, I would have preferred it in person as, as a viewer. So, so Riley here, let's get the final word on this from you. And let me throw something out at you. Uh, 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 Andre says we learn from these debates something about the candidates, regardless of what their talking points are all about. And I think she makes an important point. And here's an example of that. It strikes me uh, that in this debate yesterday, uh, David Perdue presented the image of a former CEO, uh, a strong CEO, who has run businesses well and wants to continue his time in Washington uh, because he uh, uh, is is pro-business. He wants to make sure that uh, the country runs as a well-oiled machine. I mean, he he created that image, and I'm I'm not doing a very good job describing it now, but but that's because I want to get to a different point. I thought Asov had a mo- couple of moments that were very nimble, and maybe. Uh, something that will stand in the minds of uh, viewers, despite the fact that I thought uh, uh, that, that Purdue did what he wanted in terms of projecting his image. Asaf caught the fact that Purdue was looking at his notes repeatedly. That was not, that's not something Asaf could have planned in advance. He had no idea that <laughs> Purdue was going to look down at notes a couple, but he very quickly picked up on it, picked up on it very strongly, and I thought used it rather effectively. Uh, and I wonder if that's one of those moments that might have an impact, or are we so locked into our positions on these races that nothing matters? Well, I think like Donna, we're all trying to navigate this virtual platform for debates. But I think it does, like as you pointed out with um, John Ossoff, gives us a chance to kind of see how they think on their feet, engage their temperaments. I don't think we can do away with debates just because we, other than that, we'll get exactly the message that these candidates want to give to us. We need to have the opportunity to ask them questions. And like you said in the beginning, Bill, if they don't answer those questions, that's very telling in and of itself. But the way candidates navigate um, these debates right now is very, very telling. All right, let's do this. Um, Let's get to our uh, next break. And uh, when we come back, let's move on. We had visits from Jill Biden and Donald Trump Jr. yesterday. I want to talk a little about that. And then let's get at least a couple minutes on the Amy Coney Coney Barrett hearings, which uh, are in their second day on Capitol Hill right now. You're listening to Political Rewind. Uh, Let me point out to you, as you vote early, if you're planning to do that, and you run into significant problems or problems that you think are worth reporting, uh, GPB has now got a partnership with uh, ProPublica, the nonprofit uh, news gathering site or investigative news site, in which uh, we are documenting with them uh, problems with voting around the country. If you run into a problem, go to the GPB news uh, website, and you will find there a link to a place where you can uh, report where you voted, what the problems were, and and help us gather information. Uh, Sam, maybe we can post uh, the uh, link to that actual site on our on our website uh, today. Um, all right, let let's move on. Um, Tia, yesterday, first day of early voting, brought Jill Biden to town. First time there's been an actual Biden <laughs> campaigning in Georgia in the general election. 
and Donald Trump Jr. Joe Biden went to downtown Decatur, I think probably the heart of blue metro Atlanta, of liberal blue metro Atlanta. And uh, Donald Trump Jr. was up, in, among other things, at a gun club in Kennesaw. Joe Biden said, there's no do-overs. This is it, folks. You can, you can save our democracy uh, on November 3rd. That was basically her message. But I want to talk for just a moment, Tia, about your colleague Greg Bluestein's uh, reporting on that Kennesaw rally with Donald Trump Jr., he said, here's what Greg reported. He called the Kennesaw gathering a red meat rally rare enough for the most fervent in the GOP base, with the president's son painting Biden as a doddering shut-in, calling U.S. Senator Kamala Harris, quote, the most robotic, unlikable human being in politics other than Hillary Clinton, mocking Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi as the Marie Antoinette of the 21st century, But here's the payoff line, accusing Democrats as indifferent to the most heinous crimes imaginable, including pedophilia. Quote, they're normalizing pedophilia. This is a problem as old as time. How come Donald Trump is the first person to do anything about it? I was kind of stunned by all of that. Pick out which you think uh, uh, is something you want to respond to. Yeah, and I do, you know, Greg was, um, he and uh, our colleague Patricia Murphy, um, you know, teamed up yesterday to report on these dueling rallies that had, could not have been more different in setting, tone, and quite frankly, how they uh, socially distanced. And I do think it's interesting to see, we know that Donald Trump, if he loses Georgia, it it would be a clear sign that he will not have another term. You know what I mean? Biden does not need to win Georgia to become president. And, of course, anything can happen. But Trump losing Georgia would be, like, the worst sign. So the question is, why does the Trump campaign think that repeating QAnon conspiracy theories, which is where this pedophilia stuff comes from, Why do they think that talking down on women, which we already know has affected their support amongst suburban women, why do they think that's a message that they should bring to suburban Atlanta? It's just it's very interesting to me what what they need to accomplish versus what they're doing doesn't seem to line up with each other. That's an interesting point, Andra. So that's red meat for the base. But that's not where this election. I mean, I get it. You want it's a turnout election. Nevertheless, you're going to have to convert some voters here, aren't you? And not just that. I just wanted to pick up on the QAnon part of it. It's the idea that you would not go to the base, but you would go to the extreme to try to pick up those voters as though that fringe is going to make the difference between winning and losing an election. And yeah, Georgia's gonna be close, it's probably gonna be closer than it was in 2016. So I could see the logic in it, but it's perpetuating stuff. It's like, yeah, pedophiles get prosecuted all the time, Um, right? Like this has been illegal um, and this has been condemned. We put people on lists, we tell people not to go trick-or-treating at folks' houses. Right. So just the idea that people have turned a blind eye to to child molestation is, is, is just utterly ridiculous. I think it's probably the location of doing this. Um, that's also kind of weird. The idea that you're doing it in Kennesaw um, and that you're not actually doing it in other parts 
um, of the state, for instance, where members of Congress are, or, or, or pending members of Congress are very comfortable with these ideas, I think is also the thing that's particularly kind of uh, damaging or baffling. Yeah, I just I Donna? just don't think those scare tactics are going to work. I think this whole idea that you you scare people into um, voting at this point when the election is already underway is going to work where people are, are uh, in many cases, I think, made up their minds. But those who haven't, um, I think just the, the whole I'm going to the polls because I'm fearful of things like that. I'm just. I just don't think it's um, the right tactic in Georgia when things are so close. I'm very surprised that he went there. Yeah, I completely agree. I was shocked to read Greg Bluestein's reporting and the quotes that he pulled from that rally because I was at the Jill Biden rally. And even though the messages, you know, were completely different on the Democratic and Republican side, the overall push to get voters to to the polls was the same. They were promoting the same message. They were, you know, urging Georgians to go out on the first day of early voting and throughout the three-week period. But to see Donald Trump Jr. push so far in and lean into those conspiracy theories, um, as opposed to, you know, the Biden event where um, Dr. Jill Biden pushed more of this unity and overcoming um, message, it, it, it was pretty a stark difference to see how they went about, you know, pushing the same message of early voting. So, uh, Tia, here's a, what I think I'd like to ask you about. Um, the Donald Trump Jr. talk seemed to me to show there is absolutely no message discipline whatsoever <laughs> in the Trump campaign. I mean, uh, you know, it seems like, especially a member, the members of the family can go out and pretty much fr they're free to say whatever they want. And there's no overriding discipline about what the messaging ought to be in the final two plus weeks of the election. Right. Well, we know this is just one example. The campaign isn't consistent on messaging on coronavirus. It's not consistent in messaging on whether you should vote by mail or not. You know, the. The campaign hasn't been consistent in so many ways, um, and unfortunately, the one consistency, if there is any, is that um, Trump's campaign seems to be speaking to a specific Fox News far-right audience at most times, and that's the one consistency I see. And again, I don't—it it might be enough in Georgia. It's, it, a lot of states, that's not going to be enough. You know, I don't know if I would Andra. call it com completely undisciplined um, because the strategy is throw everything on the wall, see what sticks, run with it if like it looks like it resonates with folks. Um, and also if you can sort of not be pinned down to having said anything, right, because people are you're going to tell me that I didn't see what I just saw or heard what I just heard. Um, I think the sort of larger issue is the moral question about the irresponsibility of making comments like this. When you make runaway comments, when you make bigoted comments that sort of give people license and cover to say and do things that will actually physically harm other people, right? That's a problem. And the fact that you would go out and I'll say something that's that outlandish um, without evidence, um, you know, just to kind of stoke up fears is demagoguery, right? It's irresponsible. It's not smart. I mean, there are just so many reasons why this is problematic. And so, I, I, you know, we should just probably call it out for being what it is. 
So, Andra, while the ball's in your court, and before we uh, move on, uh, I, it looks like I'm, I was looking this morning at the latest polls of um, national polls, of course, but but also uh, especially battleground state polls. And um, we've already heard from the, the panel today that Georgia, if Trump loses Georgia, it's pretty much all over for him. But, Andra, the other interesting thing that's happening here is that the, the battleground state polls are beginning to look more and more like the national polls in terms of the gap between Biden and Trump. And what seems to be happening in terms of Wisconsin, in terms of uh, Pennsylvania, in terms of Michigan, when you pick the state, Arizona, uh, the Trump map is really shrinking. Uh, and so the fact that the president is coming back to Georgia on Friday, we've now learned, tells us just how important this state is as the state. You know, we know polling is only a snapshot of the moment. That's a given. Nevertheless, it's an important snapshot. And what we're seeing in that snapshot today is how his path to victory is shrinking and why Georgia really is something he's got to hold on to. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Georgia was always going to be competitive, at least for the first part of the cycle. I mean, the fact that it's still competitive, that it's still within the margin, um, even this late in October, uh, you know, is still telling. I think the sort of the cautionary tale from 2016 is we can't on October 13th assume that you can stop polling and sort of figure out whether or not there's any movement, because the problem, one of the problems last time was in uh, the upper Midwest in particular, was that they stopped surveying. And so what they didn't notice was a shift in the last couple of weeks of the campaign. Um, And so we just have to be vigilant. um, And the good, reputable pollsters are going to have to make sure that they continue to stay out in the field so that they could detect any movement, um, you know, if we're going to do anything. And the campaigns can't neglect GOTV. Like, this is the turnout kind of uh, operation. Um, And so the phone banking you know, the mailers, the text messages, the things that they're doing to try to make sure that people actually get out to the polls are absolutely vital for either side, you know, if they hope to win this state and other states. Um, Let me, Tia, before we uh, uh, close out the show today, let me point out that those people who say, well, the polling in 2016 showed Hillary Clinton with a big lead as well, uh, neglects to point out several factors. Number one, Joe Biden has been over 50 percent in many polls in terms of uh, likability, in terms of uh, people's saying they believe in him and trust in him, whereas Hillary Clinton never got into the high 40s on that number. There are other factors at play here that suggest this really may not be 2016 all over again. Right. I mean, we can talk a whole nother hour about polling and what the polling four years ago did and didn't show us. And some of it was the polling needed to be improved, but some of it was, you know, interpreting the polling in a way that uh, wasn't always done. Um, But if we just look at this year with better polling, and as you said, Joe Biden is uh, polling better than Clinton, more consistently than Clinton. For example, um, the fact that white voters in Georgia are, um, according to recent polls, supporting Biden more, that's an issue for Trump. Um, You get the last word on today's show, Tia Mitchell, because we really are out of time. So, Tia, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Donna Lowry, great job here today and thank you for the work you did on the debate yesterday riley bunch we look forward to having you back on the show soon and dr Andre gillespie thank you too uh, my thanks to jesse nicewanger sam burma and amelia brock as we are in the middle of week 30 
of doing Political Rewind on remote. Um, we're done today. We'll be back with another political show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear a mask. And please, just go get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.